Good. So this morning we're continuing in our series um, called Ask God Anything. We've been in this. This is the 11th message in the series. The plan is, if nothing goes a different direction, that next Sunday we'll wrap up this series. And uh, we've gotten a lot of questions that deal with um, heaven and, uh, you know, what heaven is going to be like and uh, some of the timeline of all that. And, um, and so we're going to try to deal with some of those. To finish the series out with, uh, again, a lot of questions that you've asked deal with that topic. So that's what we're planning to wrap it up with. So today is the 11th message. Next Sunday, message number 12, final message in the series called Ask God Anything. You know, in our culture, our culture is shaped by a lot of different voices, a lot of different influences. When you look at our culture, uh, it is shaped to some degree by the academic voice. Right. Whenever uh, you know, you look at all the proliferation of schools, homeschool, private school, public school, uh, and then on top of that, you've got universities, you've got postgraduate universities as well. When you put all that together, the, the academic community has a strong voice that is very has a shaping influence in our culture. In a lot of ways, where our schools and universities go, to some degree, our culture goes as well. There's a very powerful voice in the academic community. Another shaping influence in our culture is the media. Whether that's the news media, whether that's uh, entertainment, music, film, television, whether that's personalities of uh, those who are celebrities, what have you, as they throw their voice into the arena, then you also have a shaping influence that takes place. Our culture, to some degree, is shaped by our media here in our country as well. And, and then even in addition to that, you've got the political voices, where you've got uh, you know, a, a large amount of influence that comes from the political voice in our culture. And, and even there, you've got some competing voices. You've got the... The Democrat voice, you've got the Republican voice, and then a few others as well that are scattered in there also, and, and all of that serves to shape our culture as well. And then even on top of that, you've got the religious voice, which honestly has a lot of different expressions. I mean, one religious voice in some ways may say one thing, another religious voice may say another thing. And, and when you funnel down the religious voice, you ultimately kind of, you also come to the shaping influence of, of the Bible right? Those who would hold to the Bible and those that would uh, look to live by what the Bible teaches us specifically. All of those things mash together to be a shaping influence in our culture. All of those voices have an influence ultimately in our culture to one degree or another. Uh, but I would say that more than any other voice, the one that seems to be suppressed and the one that seems to be resisted, not suppressed, resisted is the better word, the voice that's resisted the most consistently seems to be the voice related to the Bible. Uh, because even though we may disagree with certain academic uh, um, uh, voices, we may disagree with certain media voices or news outlets, we may disagree with certain political views or parties or, or, or personalities, uh, there, there is nothing that compares with the resistance that often comes to the Bible. And I think a lot of that is because it sets itself up specifically as God's Word. Last Sunday, uh, I dealt with a question in this Ask God Anything series that talked about the Bible. And one of the things that we established or reminded ourselves last Sunday was when the Bible speaks of itself, it speaks of itself as God's Word. That's how it testifies about itself. If you could put the Bible on the witness stand and say, you know, you know what, do, what do you testify about yourself? Uh, it's going to say, I testify to be God's word. That's what the Bible says about itself. It's very clear about that. It's how Jesus treated it. It's how the early church treated it. It's how the Old Testament prophets treated it. It, it is God's word to us. So it carries authority. When it speaks into our lives, it speaks truthfully. We can trust in it. it it's without error. And we can ultimately look to live by it, which is one of the reasons that God gave it to us in the, in the first place. 
Well, today's question, as we look at today's question, it's going to be one of the, one of the most explosive, I would say probably the most explosive question that we're going to deal with specifically, the question that was submitted for today. Again, it was submitted anonymously. But this question specifically today, it really, it is addressed by every culture-shaping voice that I can think of. As we look at the topic that is being addressed today in our message, the question that was asked, the media has a voice that speaks to that topic. Our political voices speak to that topic. Uh, the um, religious community speaks to this topic. To a large degree, the academic community speaks to this topic. And even on top of all that, the Bible itself speaks specifically to this topic. All of those arenas have something to say about the topic we're going to look at this morning what I want to do ultimately is just to deal with the question as it's asked and to let the Bible ultimately give us the answer. And so I'm going to read the question today. It was asked, I don't know if it was asked by one person um, a month apart because one of these questions was submitted in December, the other in January. Again, they're anonymous unless you tell me what question you submitted. I have no idea. And we got a lot of questions that were submitted. Um, <clears throat> or I, I, I don't know if it was from two different people. But the first question says, what does Christ think about the LGBTQ plus community? Will he still accept me for who I am? Will I be welcome in the church? And then the second question asked a month later is a little more simplified. It just says, what does God say about LGBTQ plus? So what does God say? What does Christ think about that topic, about that community? That's the question that is asked. So as I've already established, when you look at the Bible, the way it speaks of itself, the way Jesus treated it, the way the Old Testament prophets treated it, the way the, the, the New Testament church treated it, the Bible is God's word to us. So anytime anyone asks, what does God think about? What is God's perspective towards, right? Any topic that you want to roll out on the table, what we need to go to is ultimately to the Bible because that's where God has spoken to us. As our creator, he has spoken into our lives. He's spoken into creation to give us direction. And, and, and he, he does that, <laughs> he does that through Scripture specifically. And so what I want to do this morning is deal those, those two very, very good questions, very bold questions, very, and, and again, controversial questions for a lot of people in our culture, but I just want to deal with them and answer them forthrightly the way they were asked. What does Christ think about and what does God ultimately say about this topic as well? It, it, is, a, it is a hot topic. Before I dive in, I want to just say that in many ways, the Christian community has mishandled this topic badly in a number of different ways. And one of the largest ways I'm going to deal with towards the end of this message specifically, the Christian community has fumbled this topic in a lot of ways, in a variety of ways. But I also want to say that at the same time, the homosexual community has also mishandled this topic in in poor ways as well, right? The Christian community has fumbled this topic in some ways. The homosexual community has fumbled this topic in certain ways. Uh, in, in all of us, I think, in many ways could do better as we address this. And the way we start by doing better is by just letting the Bible speak for itself. So I'm going to give you three principles that I think you can track right back to Scripture as I deal with this topic, and again, just looking to let the Bible ultimately speak for itself and then shape its influence for every single one of us this morning. Principle number one, I hope you'll jot this down, they're going to kind of build one to the other, is that our identity is marked 
by where we stand with God. Our identity is marked by where we stand with God. It's interesting how this question was asked, how it was phrased specifically. Um, there was a part of this, this question, the longer question that I read. It says, will he, speaking of Christ, will he still accept me for who I am? Now, I, I want to pause there because, I, again, I don't know who submitted this question, but it, it sounds as though that the question is asked because of that phrase, will he still accept me for who I am? It sounds like whomever uh, submitted this question has either embraced um, a lifestyle. I know LGBTQ plus deals with a lot of stuff, gender, um, sexuality, a lot of that. But it sounds like they may have either embraced this lifestyle already or are struggling with that, right? That's the way it sounds with, with the way the question is worded. Will he still accept me for who I am? And, and I want to just point out, I was, I was, as I did the first service, that one of the things that sounds like, I'm not trying to be junior psychologist here, but it sounds as though for the person who submitted this, that their identity is linked more closely than it should be with their sexuality, right? And, and, and I want to remind all of us, not just in this topic, but in any arena of life, that we not only do ourselves a disservice, but we take a step down a dangerous path if we root our identity in anything other than what God says about us. Businessman, store owner, whoever you may be, businesswoman, if you base your identity on who you are vocationally, you are going to set yourself up for a lot of heartache in your life because your vocation was never intended to bear the weight of your identity. If you base your identity on, on uh, your accomplishments, for me, if I base my identity on a pastor, people may, may say I'm a pastor, but that's not who I am, it's what I do, right? I'm not identified by, by a role that I feel, I'm identified by who God says that I am. And as it relates to sexuality as well, in the same exact way, a person cannot afford to be identified based on what side of the line they fall or they choose as it relates to sexuality. Those things were never intended to bear the weight of our identity. We are identified by who God ultimately says we are. We're identified based on where we stand with him through a relationship with Jesus. Now, I want you to see this a little bit here in Galatians. You don't have to turn there. You can read along with me. I mean, you can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to move a little quickly. But in Galatians chapter 3, as Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, I think he emphasizes this. He emphasizes this whole issue of, <clears throat> of identity. He says in Galatians 3, verse 26 through verse 28, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, he's speaking to a group of Christians. He's speaking to a body of believers. He says in verse... Um, Let's see, let me find where I was. Verse 27, he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's an interesting phrase. He says, to the Christians, to the believers, he says, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. That is a picture. He's not speaking literally. It's not like, okay, you accepted Jesus, and then they gave you a new set of clothes. He's speaking figuratively here. He's speaking about identity. He says that when you look at yourself now, you look at yourself, Christian, through a new lens. And when you look at other followers of Jesus, you look at them through a new lens as though you and they have been clothed, they've been identified by the person of Jesus. This is so significant. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. 
There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that there's no such thing as Greeks. He's not saying there's no such thing as Jews. I mean, that would be ludicrous. He's not saying there's no such thing as, as, uh, as male or as female. I mean, he, he created us as male and female. He's not disagreeing with that. That's not a verse that can be used to argue for or against gender. He's not speaking about it. He's speaking about identity. And what he's saying here is, he says, your identity, believer, is rooted in where you stand with God. It's rooted in your relationship with Jesus. A lot of times, for some reason, when we have conversation about this specific topic, it seems like an undue amount of of emphasis is placed on identity related to sexuality. That's not the way God ever intended. It's not rooted in that. Our identity is rooted in who we are ultimately through the person of Jesus. So, <clears throat> so what does the Bible say specifically about homosexuality? Uh, again, the question is asking about a broad range, gender, as well as sexuality. So what does the Bible say specifically about sexuality? Let's just deal with that first. And I think as we go, it's going to speak into some of these other areas that are such hot topics in our culture as well. First of all, let me preface what I say by this, that the Bible was not written as a, uh, as a handbook regarding sexuality to begin with. It, it, that's not the purpose behind it. The Bible was written, ultimately, all 66 books put together as one called the Bible. It was written for the primary purpose of teaching us who God is, teaching us his nature, teaching us who we are and what our nature is, and how we can have a relationship with him through Jesus, right? Because of our sin, our relationship with God is broken. We are at odds with God. The Bible even says we're enemies with God without a relationship with Christ. The Bible was given, written by our creator, (laughs) written as his message to us. It's all true. It's all authoritative. He gave us his word primarily to teach us how we can have a relationship with him through Jesus. It shows us who he is. It tells us about his nature, tells us of our need for him, tells us in our fallenness as as sinners that we need redemption, tells us how to turn from our sin, place our faith in Christ. We come into a relationship with God that way. That's why the Bible is written. But whenever it speaks on a topic, whether that topic is a historical event or whether that topic is something like parenting or whether it deals with sexuality, when it speaks to those topics, even though it wasn't written primarily as a handbook for those things, when it speaks about them, it speaks truthfully, right? It tells us what God's view is. It answers the question that was asked, what does God think about? If the Bible speaks about it, whatever the topic is, we know that's God's view, okay? Because the Bible was written as his word ultimately to us. So understanding all that, when we look at the Bible and we look at this topic, we overlay the topic of all the LGBTQ plus stuff, when we lay it over the top of scripture, the Bible speaks to that topic. And where it speaks, it speaks truthfully. And it paints for us a picture of what God's design is. So what does it say? Let's just start to answer the question now. What does, what does it say about this topic of homosexuality? When it speaks of it, not only does it speak truthfully, but it also paints this clear picture that it was, it's not part of God's creative design. That when it speaks about the topic of homosexuality, it's not, the Bible doesn't paint a picture of it being part of God's design. It paints a picture that is, it is outside of God's design. That it falls outside the perimeter of what God has designed 
ultimately. Part of that we can see. You, you, can, you can follow along with me on the overhead, on the screen behind me. Part of that we begin to see in Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. It says in Genesis 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image, right? That's where, that's where your identity lies. You're an image bearer of God. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, all right? That's, that speaks to the, to the gender issue as well, that, that we're, we're not at liberty to try to redefine or redesign Anything related to gender, God has already established that. I know this is a huge topic today. It's a huge topic in our culture. I left out the athletic voice, right? The gender issue right now specifically is, has crossed over into the athletic community also, and it's just explosive in that arena as well. But the Bible, the Bible has spoken. I mean, God, God has created us male and female, so he lays that out for us. But when you go to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, you go a little bit further, verse 22, Speaking of when God created Adam, he then created Eve. It says, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, this is the first Hallmark card, okay, in a way. Uh, Adam was so moved by this creation. He now sees woman in front of him that is going to be his wife, and he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right? So that's the picture. So when you look at the creative design, the creative design was male and female. The creative design was procreation, go and fill the earth. Right? That was God's command. And so when you then, you drop over that design, the, the, um, the topic of homosexuality, it doesn't fit. I mean, it clearly doesn't fit God's creative design. It, it, it falls outside the boundaries of what God has designed ultimately as creator. So what, what does God say specifically about the topic? Well, when it does speak, it seems to speak clearly. I'll give you some examples of where it speaks. It doesn't speak about this topic often. Uh, there are probably, I'd say, four or five primary passages that deal with it, but when it deals with it, it deals with it pretty clearly. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 would be one of those examples. It says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. If you go a little bit further, if you go over to the New Testament, to the book of Romans chapter 1, Chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, Paul is writing here in the New Testament. He says, Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, <clears throat> the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So, so in the New Testament context, it speaks. So I, I think it's clear when you look at just those two passages, there are a couple of others we could go to as well, that when the question is asked, so how does God view this, what, what, how does Christ view this, 
I think it'd be clear if, if God truly did give us his word as his letter to us to show us how to live in submission to him as our creator and as our savior as believers, then it's clear based on what we've read that, that homosexuality would fall outside those boundaries, right, of what God has designed. It would fall outside of those boundaries from a biblical perspective. Now, I want to be fair. Principle number two is equally as important as everything I've already said. God condemns all sin. In fact, I could even add to that. God condemns all sexual sin. I mean, any kind of sin, I mean, God's going to condemn it. But when you take any kind of sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality, then again, I think the Scripture just spoke to, when you take adultery, if you take lust, if you take sex outside of marriage, whether it's before marriage or or in the confines of marriage with someone you're not married to is adultery, prostitution. I mean, there's a lot of different examples of what falls outside of what God's designed, not just that one topic, right? So in all fairness, we have to be fair in saying that God looks at all sexual sin as being outside the boundaries of his design. He would condemn all of that as sin. And I would go so far as to say there's not a one of us in this room that can say, I don't think, right? That can say that somewhere, either in our mind or in our heart or actually lived out in action, that we can say that we're free from any sexual sin. I think for all of us, somewhere either in our mind or our heart or in our actions, we would all have to say, you know what? I've committed sin in the area of sexual purity. God would call it sin, regardless of whether it's uh, a part of the the, uh, LGBTQ stuff or whether it's for anyone else. So, so again, just understanding, right? There's a lot of lot of, of of level space that applies to all of us in that area specifically. God's going to condemn all sexual sin ultimately as outside His boundaries, and the remedy to that is the same as it is for any other sin. It's that we repent of it, we turn from it, we admit it for what it is, we confess it to God, we turn, we walk away. And we walk in obedience. Or if we've never given our lives to Christ to begin with, we, we, we surrender our lives to Christ. We trust Him, right? The remedy for any sin, sexual or not, is always repentance, and then we turn to Jesus. That's always the remedy. I mean, that, that's, that's what the Bible communicates. There is no other remedy. There's an interesting passage in the New Testament in John chapter 8. Turn there with me if you would. Um, I do want you to turn here. I want you to see this. It's a powerful passage of Scripture. Remember, I mentioned earlier in the message that the Christian community has really fumbled this issue badly in horrendous ways in some cases. And at the same time, also, the homosexual community has fumbled this issue in a lot of ways, in horrendous ways at times as well. I think John chapter 8 here, if there was one snapshot out of Scripture that would be a narrative, and by narrative I mean it's an event that unfolded in history and we get to read it kind of like a diary account as it's described, this narrative account in John 8 is a snapshot out of Jesus' ministry where he has an encounter with someone. And I think this picture here, this narrative, this passage to me, paints such a clear picture of where Christians have fumbled this, this issue, where the homosexual community has fumbled this issue, and it also paints a picture as to how God sees it. I think better, perhaps, than any other passage that we can read. And so let's jump in and see what it says. John chapter 8, 
I'm just going to read the passage and kind of let it speak for itself. John 8, beginning in verse 1. So it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is during Jesus' ministry, obviously. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down, and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, let me, let me pause there for a second. Remember earlier in the message, I mentioned that there are a lot of voices that shape our culture. The media, uh, political, academic, religious, right? <laughs> Not every religious voice is necessarily lining up with Scripture. Okay, so we need to, we need to keep that in mind. These were religious leaders. Uh, it, it may sound confusing. If you've never read the Bible before, if you're one of those... You, you may think, oh, these are religious leaders. These were the right people. No, just because they were religious doesn't necessarily mean they lined up with God's view. So these religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the ones largely responsible for crucifying Jesus a little bit further down the road, right? So they may be religious, but they weren't necessarily having the right perspective here. And so these, these guys, and it had to have been a setup, obviously. They find this woman. In the midst of committing adultery, they, they drag her into the presence of Jesus. Verse 5, and this is what they say to him. They say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, testing Jesus, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. We have no idea. There's no record of what he wrote. It's inconsequential. It doesn't matter to this passage. But curious minds would like to know. Verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, right? So he quit, he quit writing, he straightens up, <laughs> and, uh, and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. If he was drawing a picture, he finished his picture, I guess, right? If he was writing the names of the religious leaders with a little dash, in the sins that they had also committed, then he would still be writing that list today. And by the way, he'd still be writing that list if it was us. Okay? So he stoops back down after he says, hey, whichever one's without sin, grab a stone, have at it, be the first. And then he stoops down and he keeps writing on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the midst. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Verse 11. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. If we take verse 11, a powerful, powerful verse. If we take verse 11 and, and, and we, we extricate from that, we, we, we cut off the end of it, that verse says something very, very dangerous. Because we then would say, well, you know what? When Jesus caught that woman, or uh, didn't catch her, but when, when he dealt with a woman called adultery, you know what? He said, I don't condemn you. So, it, you know, I think God's okay with us committing adultery because, I mean, he said he didn't condemn her, right? That's very dangerous. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, quoting Jesus, I do not condemn you either, but then he adds to that, go from now on, sin no more. 
See, what, when you put that together accurately and you let the Bible speak for itself, what does Jesus say about adultery? We know what it says because the Bible tells us. When you look at the issue of adultery, and I think we could put any, any sin in there. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It, draw a blank, insert, insert your sin here, right? For any of us, whatever we put there, he's going to say, I don't condemn you. You're not identified by your sin. I, I, in fact, I died on the cross to pay for it so that you don't have to be identified by it. But at the same time, I love you too much to just leave you in a life that's outside the boundaries of my design. I love you too much to just leave you wallowing in your sin. No, I don't condemn you. I'm going to die. I, I, for us, now we can say I have died, or he, he's already died to forgive us, but he loves us too much to leave us there. He's going to call us back into obedience because that's where his design is. Does that make sense? And, and, and the wording, I think, is, is, is phrased for a reason. He didn't say, go sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. I mean, otherwise, we're all condemned still, you know, because we all still struggle with sin. He said, no, I don't condemn you. Now let your standing with me as your Savior lead you up to a level of obedience. Right? It's a powerful, powerful verse as to how Jesus ultimately dealt with this. So let's read the question again, and let's begin to pull all this together. So the question was asked, the anonymous question, what does Christ think about the LGBTQ plus community? When we let his voice through his word speak to us, I think it would be right for, I know it would be right for us to say, what does he think about that community? He loves that community. He loves that community, community greatly. He loves that community desperately. Not that he's desperate. He loves it with every part of who he is. He loves that community so much that he died on the cross for that community, Right? If we were to put Jesus here and ask him, how much do you love the people who have chosen that particular lifestyle that are part of that community, I think he would make it more than evident to us that he loves that community far more than we're even capable of loving that community. And he would put our sin in the midst of that too. And he would say, you know what? When you fall into that community that puts you in a sinful group, he says, I love you too in that community. <laughs> Right? How do you feel, God, about that community? He would say, I love that community more than you can realize. I died for that community. The second question, will he still accept me for who I am? Again, we've already talked about identity. We're not identified by the choices we make. We're identified by based on where we stand with him. Yes, he accepts us for who we are. He doesn't wait for us to get cleaned up first and then come to him. He will come down to wherever we are, whatever gutter that we're in, whatever mistakes we've, any of us in this room have made. He will meet us there. He'll come there and he'll say, I don't condemn you. I've died for you. I call you to a relationship with me I will forgive you but it's going to be on my standards and I'm going to call you out of that sin and I'm going to call you to a life surrendered to me why that's not a ball and chain that's not a shackle it's because they're in the center of his design in those boundaries that's where life is that's where fulfillment is for the person who grapples with this right is he going to accept me yes he will accept you but he loves you too much to leave you in a place outside of his creative design to just let that go unchecked. That's the way he deals with all of us. And then the last question, 
will I be welcome in the church? <laughs> what other answer can there be? If God already makes it clear that I love those in that community, and if he's already made it clear that I love you so much, I'll call you out of what I've described as sin into a relationship with me, into a life of obedience. What other choice can the church make but to say, the doors are open? That unpacks in a lot of different ways. It unpacks a lot of different... There's a lot of other questions. I got one in the lobby after first, first service. A lot of other questions that spur out of that. But I'm telling you, I don't think I would want to be the one responsible for closing and locking the door to the church for anyone of any background, of any lifestyle, to where they can't attend. I don't want to be the one with that responsibility, right, with the key to the lock in my hand. It's part of the reason the church exists, is to proclaim truth without compromise, but to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> So if the person who wrote this is struggling with this or has even embraced this lifestyle, am I welcome to attend? Absolutely yes. And I would hope that would be the, the response from every single one of us. But understand, understand, as with any of us, if there's an area of our life where there's need, we've got to be willing to put it away and to follow God's lead. That's the way it is for all of us, every single one of us. You know, I, I think for, as an example, to take away some of the emotion of this, because this is a, such a loaded topic in our culture, um, and there's too much to fit into a 30-minute message. This is such a loaded topic. I think to take away the, the emotion of this, I was thinking about this earlier. What if, I, what if I read the question a little bit differently? What if I read the question not dealing about LGBTQ? What, what, what if I read it in regards to, let's, let's just say adultery. We, that's kind of the issue that was dealt with in Scripture. What does Christ think about the adulterous community? <laughs> he loves that community. He died for that community. Will he still accept me for who I am? Yes. He saves adulterers every day. Right? But he loves you too much to keep you in that lifestyle. Why? Because it's outside the boundaries of what he's already described. Will I be welcome in the church? Yes, those doors are open to anybody. That if we're in any area of sin, whether it's adultery or stealing or anything that we've talked about today, God, God is going to call us back into his design. He's going to call us back into obedience. Right? I think one of the ways the church has fumbled this in, in significant ways <clears throat> is in regards to a passage in Matthew chapter 7, and I'll be brief because my daughter, in Matthew chapter where Jesus, um, he paints this picture in Matthew chapter 7 of not judging another person. He says, don't, he says specifically, I'm not going to read the passage. You can read it on your own if you want. Matthew chapter 7, 3 through 5, I think it is, where he says, don't try to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye while you've got a log or a plank of wood in your own eye. It's this beautiful visual image, right? A lot of you are familiar with it. Don't try to remove the little speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. He says, first, remove the tree limb, remove the log, the plank in your own eye, and then you can deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye. 
And I think a lot of times for Christians, what ha- has happened, and for the church as well, one of the ways we've really mishandled this whole topic and fumbled it badly is that we've not put away that plank of superiority as it relates to those in this lifestyle. We've not put away the plank of hatred sometimes to those who have embraced this lifestyle. We've not put away the plank of um, uh, in, in some ways of anger as it relates to people who have embraced this lifestyle. We've not put away the plank of rejection as it relates to people who've chosen this lifestyle. And what we've done is the exact opposite of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And again, loving doesn't mean that we just swing the door open and not proclaim truth. What Jesus did with you when he saved you was that he dealt with your sin and then he had a place for you at the table right but you had to come on his terms not your own and his terms mean whatever it is we lay down the sin and we follow for us as Christians we do not have it all together we all struggle in our own way in our own areas every one of us but at the end of the day we're all called that when he shows us sin, we put it away the best we can and we surrender and we follow. That's how we're saved and that's how we walk. Principle number three, we're done. And in that context, we're all called to live within God's boundaries of purity. We're all called to live within God's boundaries of sexual purity as well. There are a lot of voices that shape culture, academic, political, media, celebrities, religion. But the one voice that we can count on where we see his word, he tells us, and it's this voice. It's his word. A word that has room for everybody, but a word that still expects we come on his terms of repentance faith and surrender in Jesus. Hey, if, if you've made that decision, what he wants from you is to see people the way he does, <laughs> to love them the way he does, and to just walk according to truth. It's kind of like you keep your head down and you do your business the best you can. Speaking truth, living by truth. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, I'm telling you, side of his boundaries, to step inside by leaving the sin behind the best you can and saying, Jesus, would you forgive and save me? And I promise you, he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, a hard topic. This should be an easy topic. We look at this topic and there's so much attached politically and uh, as it relates to athletics even nowadays, Lord, as it relates to... um, the media, we all have our own, sometimes the loudest voice is the voice of our own opinions, even. And, and Lord, it just seems like with this topic in particular, we as Christians have just fumbled it badly. And at the same time, those in the homosexual community have fumbled it badly. Lord, the simplest response is just to say, as we do in any area of life, what is God's take? Where do we find that? We find that in your word. And when it speaks clearly, am I willing to conform and adjust my life and my views even 
to line up with what he desires. Not, the, not, not to line up and conform with a political party or with a, a media personality or a news outlet or an academic institution, but to conform and align our life with you. Or that's the, that's the big question. And if we do that, Lord, then we need to have room Lord, for those who don't know you yet, for those who are living outside of the boundaries of what you've already designed, Lord, we need to have room for them. We need to have conversation. We need to have dialogue. We need to be able to demonstrate your love and, and, and to demonstrate compassion. Lord, that's the way you operated Jesus when you walked this, this earth. But at the same time, we do that. There's such a balance there where we don't ever compromise what you have already designed and what you've already called truth. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. We love while we stand on truth. And so, God, I pray that we as a church, at least, at least here, Lord, at least with me, God, that I can, I can walk this balance well. And where it might cost me to take a stand on what you've already said is true, Lord, that I wouldn't back off of that line, that I would still put it the same, your truth, because, because it doesn't change. But at the same time, Lord, that I would do it with compassion, with a tear in my eye, knowing that for some, that truth takes a lot of adjustment. Lord, there are some maybe even in this room today that, that are wrestling with some of these issues. They've got a loved one, Lord, who has chosen a different lifestyle. or They themselves, are, they have these, these conflicting emotions and feelings, Lord, that they've not been able, they've not been able to explain and they haven't been able to to reconcile themselves, Lord. And Lord, thank you that in any year of our lives, Lord, when we feel an out in the struggle, the sin is in how we respond to it. But Lord, when we choose to obey, Lord, you always seem to bless. And so God, help us to be people who follow your lead, to love with your heart, to see through your lens. And God, we thank you that in the end, it saves. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.